behavior and, and encouraging them to turn to righteous behavior instead. And so chapter 13 is really the crux of Paul's exhortation. A church means nothing and is nothing without love. So in verse 6, our, our, our passage tonight, the Apostle Paul is calling out the Corinthian church for rejoicing with evil. And instead, he's calling them to rejoice with the truth. In fact, I, I hope to show you tonight that rejoicing with the truth of the gospel will actually make it impossible for us to rejoice with wrongdoing. So that's our simple outline for tonight. Love does not rejoice our wrongdoing by rejoicing with the truth. Okay, so first, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Well, I think we have to answer the question what wrongdoing is. And, it, and this verse can also be translated as love does not delight in evil, which might be a little clearer. And I'm going to use these phrases interchangeably, wrongdoing and evil. But let's explore this a little bit more. So if you guys can keep your, um, your finger in 1 Corinthians 13 and turn to Romans 1. So Romans chapter 1. We're going to read from Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. It's just a book right before 1 Corinthians. Okay, chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. I'll read it for us. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Okay, so did you catch the other, other word and, and phrase that the Apostle Paul used here? He uses the phrase, all manner of unrighteousness. And then he proceeds to list a bunch of really devastating words to clarify what he means by unrighteousness. And it really does seem all encompassing. But I want you guys to take note that many of these words are, are synonyms. And some of them actually match the verbs that the apostle Paul uses in our passage in 1 Corinthians 13. And many of these words are love opposites. Envious, insolent, haughty, boastful, heartless, ruthless. Okay, so now if we go back to 1 Corinthians, this word study helps us to understand what the Apostle Paul means when he says wrongdoing. He's condemning the Corinthians' behavior, their evil actions, and unrighteous deeds. And so we're gonna, let's do a quick recap through this letter of some of the things that the Corinthians have been doing. In chapters 1 through 4, church members were creating division by advocating for various church leaders rather than uniting under Christ. Right, in, in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul calls out sexually immoral and disgusting behavior. In chapter 6, church members were suing each other to seek their own version of justice rather than forgiving each other. In chapters 8 through 10, some of them were stumbling others to sin and even associating themselves with demonic influences. In chapter 11, they were dishonoring the Lord's Supper and ignoring their poor brothers and sisters. And in chapter 12, they were misusing their spiritual gifts to boast about their social status. Okay, so by the time we get to chapter 13, the Corinthian church would have read the previous 12 chapters or heard it. They'd be remembering these sins. They'd be remembering how the apostle Paul has been rebuking them. And so love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. 
is meant to appeal to their memories and to appeal to their emotions. And what about us? What does, what does wrongdoing and evil look like for us? And so there are three main categories that I want us to consider. And we're gonna move from really obvious wrongs to more subtle ones. Okay, so the first is the more overt forms of unrighteous behavior. And you know, there are the obviously criminal ones, such as murder and abuse, which I hope we all agree are unquestionably evil and despicable. There's some that we've learned, even as a kid, to stay away from, such as not getting into fights or, or stealing. And I'm glossing over this one, uh, this section, not because this behavior is less significant, but because this kind of behavior is universally condemned and rejected. So we're gonna move on to the second one. And the second one is the more hidden forms of unrighteousness. And I say hidden because these tend to be more private and might not seem immediately wrong. So what are, what are some things that you indulge in regularly? I bet there are a lot of things that we do that feel harmless, but are actually incredibly worldly. How have your peers and, and, and entertainment intake infiltrated your sense of right and wrong? For example, you, you probably start off cursing under your breath once in a while. Then maybe you hear your friends cursing here and there. And so you throw in a word and no one says anything. In fact, you actually get more laughs out of your friends and they act more friendly towards you. So really how bad can it be? What about cheating on homework or exams? Oh, sorry, I mean getting help from your friends. I mean, you do it, you do it once, you don't get caught. And then, you know, it's minimal work and you can learn the material later anyway, right? So no harm done. What kinds of TV shows do you watch? What kinds of music do you listen to? And of course, not all TV shows and music are wrong, but maybe a diagnostic question you could ask is whether you'd feel comfortable if your parents your friends or even Pastor Eric knew about some of the things that you indulge in. Because as much as these seem like mindless entertainment and harmless fun, they constantly bombard you with cultural ideologies that are not biblical and not holy. And these are of course just some examples, but don't miss this. The Apostle Paul is calling us out to reject this unrighteous behavior, just as he called out the Corinthians for their unrighteous behavior. And you know, the Corinthians probably also thought that their behavior wasn't that bad. But that's really the problem. Just as the Corinthians were corrupted by their spiritually dark city and blind to their unrighteous behavior, we must take care not to let our standards be swayed by our peers. Instead, we need to evaluate the kinds of things that we treat as innocent, but are actually wicked because they're worldly. Okay, and the third, the third is the most subtle and deceptive form of wrongdoing. And it has to do with how you respond when you see wrongdoing, whether someone sins against you or you see evils that are being done around you. It could be your parents sinning against you with unrestrained anger or a friend talking behind your back. It could be you noticing that a classmate isn't paying attention in Zoom class or you find out that someone cheated on an exam. And maybe think about how you respond to someone who's not taking the pandemic seriously, or how you respond to someone who's just completely paralyzed by fear of the virus. When your parents or siblings get angry at you, do you get angry back? Do you resent them for days? 
do you judge your classmates who are, you know, obviously doing something else in class? And at least you're better than they are because you're paying attention. And anyone on the other side of the pandemic divide, anyone on the other side of the political divide is just straight up wrong. And so, you know, we can go down these rabbit trails forever, but the point here is that perhaps the way that we respond can also be wrong and wicked. Perhaps we are being just as evil and unrighteous as the people we are opposed to and the people we look down on. I've been listening to this podcast called the, called the Language of God. It's a podcast dedicated to conversations at the intersection of science and Christianity. And so they interview you know, scientists, philosophers, atheists, pastors, Bible scholars, and they're just trying to provide a platform to encourage productive discussion between scientists and Christians, many of whom are both like me. And a primary goal of this podcast is to clarify the misconception that science and Christianity are fundamentally incompatible. Granted, this is a longstanding and heated debate because scientific evidence does seem to contradict the biblical account. So the podcast really tries to exemplify what it looks like for people who stand on opposite corners of a philosophical arena to try and understand each other. And what stands out for me is that we even need a podcast like this. I mean, yeah, many, many differences exist and contradictions do exist between the Bible and modern science. But the fact that this podcast exists also highlights that Christians are more known for being argumentative than for being loving. And maybe we can expect that from scientists, but shouldn't we expect more from Christians? And maybe that, okay, and maybe that podcast doesn't interest you in the least because you hate science, hopefully not. But consider what it says about you when you label a presidential candidate or a political party as the worst. Consider what it says about your spiritual state when you immediately dismiss Christians expressing political views on social media that are different from yours. And I wanna make this clear, that our unloving responses are just as wrong and wicked as the evil that we are responding to. It's no accident that the Apostle Paul urges us not to rejoice our wrongdoing after a series of unloving verbs. So if we're being impatient, unkind, envious, arrogant, rude, irritable, and resentful, then we are in the wrong. And he's making this really challenging claim that anytime we respond in an unloving way, we are actually being the ones who are unrighteous and wicked. And the challenging part is that even if you were genuinely hurt or someone is objectively wrong, even then, if your response is not loving, then you are also in the wrong. And I admit that sounds incredibly unfair, but the more I've studied this first, the more I've been convicted that the reason that it's so easy to react in unloving ways is that we are often apathetic to our own sins. And apathy is just as dangerous, if not more so, than actively indulging in our sins. If we go back to our verse one more time, the Apostle Paul was very deliberate in choosing to write, do not rejoice at wrongdoing. He could have written, don't do wrong things or, or stay away from wrongdoing, but he says, don't rejoice. And with this word, the Apostle Paul is claiming that when you participate in morally corrupt behavior, or even if you condone it, or even if you're looking away, you are actually rejoicing with sin. It means you love sin. There's no neutral ground here. Either you reject sin and evil or you love it. 
So where do you see yourself in the spectrum of wrongdoing that we've been exploring? From the most overt to the most subtle and insidious? Because the real kicker is that no matter where you land on the spectrum, whether you're actively participating or you just don't care, you're delighting in evil. And you're becoming the very person that you make fun of and you look down on. So I have three suggestions um, to help us. And as you listen, I want you to listen for not only how to reject wrongdoing, but also how to be loving. Okay, not only how to reject wrongdoing, but also how to be loving. Okay, first and most importantly, don't rejoice with your own sins. And this is really the culmination of our discussion so far. Remember that it's our own sins that cause us to respond in unrighteous and unloving ways. We should not delight nor be apathetic towards our own sins. In fact, we should hate our sin more than other people hate our sin. Did you get that? We should hate our sin, our own sin, more than other people hate our sin. And because we know the depths of our sins better than anyone else, that should cause us to cry out with the Apostle Paul that we are the chief of sinners. And practically what this means is that we always look at ourselves first. No matter what kinds of horrors we see in the world, how deeply people wound us, we collect ourselves first. We actively fight the urge to seek justice or to retaliate on our own terms. We pause and we evaluate why we're angry and how we can respond to restore rather than to destroy. And ultimately this is loving because recognizing the selfish bent of our motivations will naturally cause us to be more gracious and more patient with those around us. It helps us realize that we have done far worse things than those around us, yet God still chose to stay with us. And that will cause us to display the same kind of radical faithfulness to, the, to people who we don't think deserve it. Second, don't rejoice with others' sins. Don't rejoice with others' sins. So this is really in the context of relationships, especially those that are close to you, like family and friends. And I would guess, because we're all sinners, you've probably already been or will be wronged by someone. Maybe, you're, maybe your parents blow up at you because you genuinely forgot to take out the trash. Maybe your friends spread false rumors about you or cut you out of their friend group. What they did wasn't, wasn't right. Don't make excuses for their sins. You need to reject the evil that you see, even in other people. But again, how you go about that matters. Your goal shouldn't be to retaliate in kind by making them feel bad and exploiting their emotions. Your ultimate goal should be to restore the relationship by helping them to see how their wrong caused pain for you. Um, a friend confronted me one time when I was in college because I, I used to take jokes too far and that would hurt my friends. And hopefully I don't do this as much anymore. But he confronted me in a very loving way he talked with me in, in private to avoid creating a spectacle and humiliating me in public. He was really humble. He asked for my forgiveness first because he had been bitter towards me for a while. But he was also really honest. He didn't sugarcoat the kinds of things that I said that hurt him. And he helped me to see how hurtful and destructive my words can be. And this moment is still seared into my memory because this is where I really learned that holding my tongue is a way of loving others well. 
And you know, the, the really loving part on his end was that he could have totally just cut me out of his life. He could have retaliated. He could have ghosted me in retaliation. But he showed me what it looks like to reject and hate sin. And at the same time, restore me to God and restore our friendship. And finally, don't rejoice with the world's sins. With this, I'm talking about our broader cultural context. And maybe the first thing that comes up in your, uh, in your mind is the racial injustice in our country, especially how that intersects with police brutality. And, you sh- and, and the fact that such injustices exist, you should care about that. But your care can either be displayed destructively by overgeneralizing all police officers to be racists, or it can be displayed restoratively by entering the lives of people of different races, hearing their stories and learning to empathize better. Maybe another example, because we're in a pandemic, the CDC reports that underrepresented minority groups are much more likely to contract COVID and to show more severe symptoms. And this is consistent all around the country. And again, the fact that these differences exist should affect us and that should move us. And maybe we can be moved to at least pause and consider why our county is being so slow to reopen schools and businesses. Even if we don't agree with them, we can be understanding that the intent is to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And none of this is a guilt trip in any way. I just want to highlight that unjust things constantly happen around the world. And we are not to stand by. We are to respond and to do so lovingly to reject the evil that we see. So hopefully through these suggestions, you're seeing glimpses of what it looks like, not just to reject evil, but also to show others how to do so in a loving way. In order to love well, you must respond to the injustices that you see around you and the evil that you see in yourself. Okay, but rejecting evil is not enough. The Apostle Paul then goes on to write that love rejoices with the truth. Love does does condemn sin, but love must also rejoice with the truth. And that's our second point. Love rejoices with the truth. Okay, so again, what what does this mean? Well, I think it's it's a little bit clearer if we look at 1 Thessalonians 2.12, and you don't have to turn there, but the Apostle Paul is exhorting the Thessalonian church to walk in a manner worthy of God. Okay, so, so in our passage, that means he's calling the Corinthian church to also live in a manner worthy of God. And one of the commentators summarizes it like this. To rejoice in the truth would mean, among other things, to embrace God's way of righteous living, a pointed contrast to the Corinthians' present conduct. Did you get that? To embrace God's way of righteous living. So the Apostle Paul is putting the truth in direct contrast with wrongdoing, unrighteousness, and righteousness. And maybe this contrast is obvious to you, but think back to what the Apostle Paul considers unrighteous. It's not so black and white. There are a lot of hidden and subtle forms. Of course, any form of morally wrong behavior is evil, but any form of self-righteous, just mental behavior is also evil because it's unloving. So to embrace God's way of righteous living means avoiding moral crookedness, but it also means avoiding responding in an unloving way. In fact, to rejoice with the truth means to take pleasure 
in holy and blameless conduct. It means we don't just avoid doing wrong things. That's not the goal. The goal is to love doing the right things. We want to love and delight in the truth. We turn away from evil and we turn towards righteousness and that gives us joy. For example, it's not just about holding your tongue when you want to curse. It's about recognizing the power and beauty of words. Will your words foul the air or will they beautify it? It's not just about avoiding cheating. It's about reveling in God's gift of intelligence for you and the sweet discipline of learning. To know that you put in the work and you can feel good about that. God loves to work. And so he wants you to be an excellent student with integrity. And if we go back to that subtle form of wrongdoing, our, our unloving responses, it's not just about forcing ourselves to be patient and kind with others. It's not any less than that, but ultimately it's about being patient and kind with joy. You want to be patient and you want to be kind. It makes you, it makes you happy to be loving. That's what it means to rejoice with the truth. That's what it means to rejoice with righteous living. So how do we, how do we get there? How do we get to a point where we delight in righteousness, where we, where we love to be loving. And hopefully you see where I'm going with this. We delight in the truth because Jesus delights in the truth. In fact, Jesus declares that he is the truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a declaration that the only way for a real relationship with God is through Jesus. It's a declaration that Jesus is righteousness incarnate, pure and blameless in human flesh. Jesus is God himself. But it's more than just a declaration. It's also a promise. It's a promise that Jesus will be truth for us, that he will be righteous for us. And it's a promise he kept while he was here on earth, enduring every temptation without sinning, and one that he fulfilled on the cross. And that's why this is such a comforting promise too. On the cross, Jesus redefined righteousness. Living righteously and, and walking in the truth is no longer about avoiding indecent deeds and, and cruising out of moral neutral. We now live righteously by leaning into Jesus. We imitate him, imitate how he responds to wrongdoing, how he always responds kindly but firmly, how he's brought to tears with compassion, we see how he gave up his life for those that he knew were evil and undeserving, people like us. So the truth, the truth is Jesus himself. Rejoicing with the truth is rejoicing with Jesus himself. And this clarifies how we can avoid rejoicing with wrongdoing. If you look back at the key idea for tonight, it says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing by rejoicing with the truth. And that's because it, it's when we rejoice with the truth, when we rejoice with Jesus, when we adore him and treasure him, that's when evil things really do seem evil. Compared to the purity of Jesus, all sin seems more perverse than ever. And because Jesus is our focus, it's impossible to see evil and not be affected. It's impossible to be wronged by someone and not want justice. It's impossible to see our own sin and remain apathetic. We look at Jesus because he shows us the only way to be truly loving. 
And I want to propose just, just one way that we can start to connect rejecting evil and rejoicing with the truth. Okay, so we're going to start to connect rejecting evil and rejoicing with the truth. And that's through anger. Specifically, God's righteous anger. If you've been listening so far, maybe this sounds counterintuitive. You know, haven't we been talking about how not to get angry in the face of wrong? But it sounds counterintuitive because anger is so associated with bitter feelings and broken relationships. But that's a misconception born out of what anger often looks like for us. Biblically, anger is simply an expression of displeasure against someone or something. As the late David Pallison puts it, you're simply saying that I'm against that. I'm against that. Which means that being angry itself is not wrong. Just in and of itself is not wrong. It just matters what you get angry about and how you express it. It matters what you get angry about and how you express it. Okay, so think, think right now. Think about what usually makes you angry. Because those things are, are what you really care about. It's why politics are so fraught with tension right now. People are, are expressing their belief systems. They're trying to protect their world. But it could also be as universal and mundane as getting frustrated, frustrated at your parents because they're nagging you once again about taking out the trash and you just want to protect your comfort. So what, so what does God really care about and want to protect? Because we need to imitate God's anger. And to answer that question, I want us to flip to one last passage tonight. Exodus chapter 32. Okay, Exodus chapter 32. We're going to look at verses 7 through 10. And while you're turning there, let me set up the context a little bit. So this is the famous golden calf story at Mount Sinai. God had just rescued the Israelites from brutal slavery in Egypt. He guided them by miraculous pillars of cloud and fire. And he had just promised them that Israel will have their own land to call home, the promised land. However, during the 40-day period that God spent with Moses, the Israelites, they built a golden calf statue. And they decided that this is going to be their God. And they worshipped it. And God gets really angry. Okay, and this is his response. We're going to read verses 7 through 10. Chapter 32, verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, let my, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Okay, maybe you immediately focus on the violence of this passage, of God consuming the Israelites. That's kind of natural. But instead, let's first focus on what caused God's anger. It's in verse 8. The Israelites turned away from God, from the covenant they had made with him. The Israelites betrayed God. He, he saved them. He established a covenant relationship with them, like a marriage. And they forgot about him as soon as they could. 
So what does that tell you about God's anger? He gets angry about covenant betrayal, broken promises, and unfaithfulness. And I want to camp on this for a little bit. Isn't it natural to feel hurt and angry when someone has wronged you? It's no accident that you want justice when you feel wronged. You even want that person to get what they deserve. And where do you think that sense of justice comes from? Tim Mackey, a a Bible scholar, puts it this way. If God sees you suffering unjustly and doesn't get angry, just stands by idly, is that loving? If God sees you treating others unjustly, is he unloving against you if he becomes angry? And this is the same reason that, you know, when your parents discipline you or they ground you, the idea is not to make your life miserable, just to make your life miserable. The real purpose is to cultivate an environment where evil is not tolerated in your homes. Your parents get angry because they care about their relationship with you and they care about your relationship with God and they love you. So if we think about the Israelites again, it's right and it's good for God to get angry with them. He's expressing his hate for evil, for broken relationships, for breaking covenants. Right? And in his anger, God would be justified to consume them. But he chooses to relent. And I want us to wrestle with this. God is constantly wronged by his people, but he constantly stays with his people. God gets angry because he's been wronged, but he remains faithful to his covenant people. And do you see how radical this is? If you're anything like me, I'm often prone to and guilty of cutting people out of my life for the smallest infractions, like not pulling their weight in a group project, let alone friends who actually betray my trust. In fact, I've been, cu- I've been cut out of other people's lives for the ways that I've hurt them. And I may, maybe I deserve that, but it still feels horrible. And, and so left to our own devices, betrayal and anger often lead to burn bridges and destroyed relationships. But God's anger doesn't manifest this way. His anger shows us what he considers to be evil, unrighteous, wrong, and wicked. And in this way, his anger is instructive. Yet God also continually binds himself to humanity because that's how anger is displayed in love. And in this way, God's anger is couched under his faithfulness. So righteous, loving anger is displayed through relationships, not by destroying them. And it's the perfect balance of uncompromising condemnation of sin and radical faithfulness to the sinner. God's anger is incredibly restorative rather than destructive. Let's, Let's bring this down to us. Delighting in the truth means we respond with resilient love in the face of wrongdoing and opposition. We get angry when we see something wrong and we express that anger in an instructive and restorative way. Righteous anger ultimately takes your displeasure towards evil and it transforms it into pleasure towards good. Righteous anger takes your displeasure for evil and it transforms it into pleasure for good. And hopefully this clarifies the three suggestions that we talked about before. Don't rejoice with your own sins, with others' sins, and with the injustices in the world. Rather, our response should be to get angry when we see evil like that. 
Because the more we respond to evil, the more we will delight when we see righteous things in the world. So when we see others being genuinely patient with a really flaky friend, when we see others being truly kind, even to those who don't deserve it, when we see others treating opposing viewpoints with respect, all of these righteous deeds become that much more beautiful. And naturally, we want to recreate and we want to imitate that kind of love. That's the power of righteous anger. And I just want to leave us with this encouragement. Whatever it is that makes you angry because it's unjust and you want something to change, you see evil and you want something to change, I want you to channel your anger to pray. Okay, so if, if we go back to the Israelites one more time, I promise, one more time, God threatens to destroy them because they worship the false God. But God ends up relenting. He doesn't actually destroy them. Why not? Because Moses appeals for the Israelites. In fact, Moses offers to give up his own life in exchange for the Israelites. And it's after this intercessory act that God is moved. He's moved to forgive the Israelites for their betrayal. God is moved to compassion. Similarly on the cross, Jesus appealed on our behalf. And he not only offered, but he actually gave up his life in exchange for ours. He was the ultimate intercession. And in this way, the cross becomes the most angry and loving act in history. God displays his anger about our sins, about the sins of the world. He displays it on Jesus. And at the same time, he makes a way to continually bind himself to us. Because it's through Jesus that we have a relationship with God at all. So what does this tell you about the incredible reality of prayer? It means that when we pray, God not only listens, but he is moved by your prayers. God sets the precedent through Jesus that he is an emotional God who is moved to compassion. So, so when you pray for others, and when you pray for him to curb evil, he'll be moved to act justly and lovingly. So let's love. Love by getting angry at evil, and we express it through prayer, especially for those that don't deserve it. This is how we remain radically faithful. Let's pray together. God, we wanna practice that right now. We wanna pray. God, and we are confident that you're listening to us. We're confident that our appeals for, even, for our own sins, for the sins of the people around us, for the world's sins, that you are moved to act and you're moved to glorify yourself. God, so I, I thank you. I thank you that we have a God who gets angry, who shows us how to be angry and how to do so lovingly. Thank you for being patient with us, for being kind with us, for being faithful with us. God, help us to display that same kind of loving anger and faithfulness to those around us. God, we love you and and I pray for fruitful small group time, for good discussions, for your word to come to life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.